This morning we'll be at Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Psalm 42. And I think you'll discover as we go through the psalm together that the worship set we just sang was very fitting to prepare our hearts to digest the words of this psalm. Unlike some of the other psalms, many of the other psalms that we can place squarely in the life of David, this particular psalm is hard to date. We do know that it was composed by a temple singer, and that is what the sons of Korah indicate, which is the heading underneath where it says Psalm 42. And it's also generally agreed that originally Psalm 42 and 43 were one psalm. And as you read the two back to back, you can, you can follow that flow of thought and some of the very similar phraseology. The writer we know was someone who was living in exile outside of Israel. And this could be the, uh, referring to the exile of, of Judah to Babylon, or it could simply have been a, a temporary condition, a temporary exile during an earlier period of time. But the time period is not as important as understanding that this is a man who longs to experience God through temple worship in Jerusalem. And that experience of God's presence is no longer limited to one place. Thankfully for us, it is available for all, for all, who long for it. So let me read Psalm 42, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, and while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. This is the word of the Lord. The longing to fill God's presence is something that we all struggle with, and it can be posed as a question like this. When I need him the most, why does God feel so far away? And the psalmist, he's wrestling with this question. The psalm is a lament. A lament expresses grief. And the writer is grieved by the fact that he desperately yearns to fill the presence of God, yet God hides himself, and this causes pain 
and confusion. And you can hear that as I read through it. The psalmist is mourning because of the intensity of his circumstances. Can you relate to that? I know you can. We all can. So let's look together at the ways this psalm instructs us to seek God, specifically when God feels distant. First of all, we see a thirst for God, a thirst for God. Verse 1, the deer is searching for water. She is panting, she is hot, and she is weak, and her legs are trembling. The drought has dried up all of her former water sources, and so she wanders, not aimlessly, but with purpose, with determination. The prophet Joel, in his book, the prophet Joel, he'll describe a drought in this way in chapter 1, verse 20. Even the beast of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So taking that text from Joel and looking at verse 1 here in Psalm 42, we see this is not just a picture of a deer simply needing to quench its thirst. It is the picture of a deer making her way over the parched, cracked earth, racked with agonizing sensations of intense thirst. And she's passing these carcasses of animals who did not find the water they desperately needed. And the sun is beating down from a brass sky, and each step is harder and harder to take. Yet there is a spring somewhere. There is living water, which is the phrase the Hebrews used for underground springs, those which never dried up, some not even during seasons of drought. When you are thirsty, finding something to drink begins to take priority. And as your thirst grows, finding water becomes an obsession. And if your thirst is not quenched, physical desire and physical necessity, they merge together into desperation, one of the most difficult sensations, the hardest feeling that our body can undergo is being thirsty. How hard do you seek after God? How intensely do you desire his presence? Think about it this way. We have this tendency to give up so easily in spiritual matters. We maybe pray for a little while and then when we feel nothing, we just simply leave off praying and we Go off to find something that, that might distract us. You have a longing for the Lord, and so hopefully you pick up your Bible. Maybe read a bit. And honestly, your thirst is not quenched. Maybe just maybe just like a sip, not so much of a gulp. And, and so you close the Bible again and busy yourself with one of the hundreds of other things that, that clamor for your time that you could be doing otherwise. And besides, it's all, it's all a welcome distraction from what seems like a fruitless search for God who is not yet drawn close, which is why you picked up your Bible in the first place or went to the place of prayer in the first place. And we read the words of Jesus, Matthew 7, 7, Seek and you will find me. Seek and you will find me. Another way to say that, closer to the original, is actually keep seeking and you will find now, these words were spoken by the one who, who knew the Father more intimately than anyone ever could. Yet Jesus, as a man, still understood what it meant to seek God until he found him. He still had to seek God. And the deer, the deer in Psalm 42, she doesn't stop seeking the water source. If she does, she will die. How many times have you, how many times have I 
given up in our seeking. And each time we seek and we still find nothing, we, we project our desperation into the future. And we say, God has not revealed himself. And instead of adding that little word yet to the end of that, we, we reason with our fallen minds. And we say, God has not revealed himself, so he will not reveal himself. Anybody tracking with me on this? And instead of pressing on and allowing our thirst to drive us to intensify the search, we lie down and then we wonder why God does not draw near. When you're thirsty enough, all you can think about is how, how utterly, how supremely satisfying cool water would feel as it runs down your throat. And then when you do find that water to satisfy, you can't imagine anything being, being any more pleasing than that water at that moment. Thirst itself is longing. Physical thirst is longing for water. Spiritual thirst is longing for the presence of God. What did the rich man in Jesus' parable, Luke 16, what did the rich man say from Hades as he was gazing up at Lazarus in paradise? He cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Did you catch that? It's pretty easy to miss. Out of all the undesirable elements of hell, and there are a lot of them, the one that stood out to the rich man the most was his thirst. He could not quench his thirst. And all he wanted in that place was for Abraham to simply let a drop of water fall from his finger into his mouth. So intense was his thirst. Thirst is longing. And there is a longing in hell that will never be satisfied. That's what makes it hell. And it's the longing for the presence of God. That is what physical thirst represents in the Bible, a longing to be completely satisfied in the presence of God. Thirst, it grows in intensity. Notice in verse 1, my soul pants for you, O God. So this is a declaration of where the psalmist is seeking to have his thirst quenched. Where? In God. But in verse 2, he steps it up. My soul thirsts for the living God. You long for something living when you feel dead inside. You know, people that are going through deep bouts of depression, they, they isolate themselves. They do the exact opposite of what is actually needed to be able to lift themselves out of the darkness, and that is they cut themselves off from the living, from the land of the living. God is the source of life. He is the life giver. But this is more than physical life being spoken of. This is spiritual life. My soul is dried up and dead. I feel barren within, like a wasteland. And some days you feel despair over your circumstances. Some days you feel absolutely nothing at all and maybe wish you even felt despair. You cry out to the living God, the only one who will restore your soul to life. But even that is not the pinnacle. Look at the second part of verse 3. When shall I come and appear before God? Before God. That's missed in our English translation. But the idea here is seeking the face of God. Older texts translate this, when shall I see the face of God? 
as I've pointed out before, being face-to-face -face with someone implies intimacy. And for all you guys, for all you men out there who are uncomfortable with a word like intimacy, a face-to-face -face encounter with God is the realization that the deepest aspirations, longings, and desires of your heart find their fulfillment in Him. That is the presence of God, falling, enveloping, wrapping you up so that you are not only completely satisfied, but you cannot imagine even what it felt like to thirst in the first place. So completely satisfied are you. And keep in mind that thirst is not a curse. It's not a curse. It's a warning sign. It tells you that you need something. Your brain is sending signals to your bodies. If you do not drink something, you will die. And we usually, we usually don't experience intense, near-death, physical thirst. Why? Because we live in America. It's Independence Day. We're very thankful for that. Even when you hear in the news or you can look outside and see how brown the trees are and there's a drought going on. How many of you have ever gone without something to drink during a drought here in the U.S.? Probably none of you. Many other places in the world, if there's a drought, it's more than just hearing about it on the news. It's actually suffering thirst because of it. problem is is that we we also never allow ourselves to really get thirsty spiritually we eat you know comfort foods or we binge on Netflix or we, or we work late or we self-medicate or we call a friend when we should be calling upon God and we have all these thousand thousands of ways of avoiding spiritual thirst and what happens it's like drinking a coke when you're thirsty it it might quench your thirst for a moment but ultimately it's not going to to help you. It's not going to give your body what it needs. Physical thirst does not feel good, but it is good because it drives you to seek the only thing that's going to help your body, and that is water. Spiritual thirst does not feel good, but it is good because it drives you to seek the only thing that will ultimately help your soul, and that is an encounter with the living God. Are you seeking God? How should you seek God? We're not left in the dark. A thirst for God, now we turn to remember God. The question that's hurled at the writer is, verse 3, where is your God? Where is your God? Now keep in mind, the writer, he has not yet found the experience of God's presence that he longs for. He is still seeking. It's easy to read verses 1 and 2 and to have this picture, this uh, this Disney picture of, of Bambi at the stream with the, with the nice uh, idyllic scenery around her drinking. That's not what's happening here. That is yet to come. At the moment, if we can, if you'll allow me to continue to stretch this deer imagery out, she is panting, she is wild-eyed, she is stumbling, even as she's trying to avoid the intense rays of the sun. There is water somewhere. It's somewhere. She has just not found it. And she is seeking, she is searching, but find it she must, or again, she will die. Verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? I haven't yet found what I'm looking for. So what do you do when you're desperately seeking to find the face of God? You remember. Look at verse 4. These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. What does the psalmist remember? Well, if you read the last part of verse 4, you discover that he remembers the former seasons of joy. His job, he had led the people of Israel as they danced and jumped and shouted praises to God, making their way toward the temple 
on one of the three high holy days of Israel, the three times a year that everyone, everyone was required to go up to Jerusalem. So whether it was Passover or Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles, each of these occasions was a time of just exuberant celebration of who God is and what he had done for the people. Times of remembrance, times of reflection, thanksgiving. And I'm not going to dwell on the significance of these feasts this morning, but the relevance to us is that we need to remember. We need to remember former seasons of joy, times when God revealed himself powerfully and meaningfully to your soul. You know what I'm talking about, right? The sacrifices and the songs and the worship at the temple is what brought the Israelites face to face with God. And that is the goal of worship, to be face to face with God. The command is to remember, and that's all throughout the Old Testament. Remember the parting of the Red Sea. That is God's ability to deliver. Remember the manna from heaven. That is God's ability to provide. Remember Mount Sinai. That is God's powerful and holy presence. Remember the water from the rock. That is God's desire to refresh and to revive his people. Remember in your own life what God has done. Remembering scripture is it's always more than just bringing an event to, to life. When we're thinking about our own lives, when the scripture talks about remembering, it's more than just using your imagination. It's that, but it's more. It's an admonition to recall. What did you see? What did you experience? What did you feel? What did you hear? What did you smell even? The Feast of Israel, they were these huge events that, that just bombarded the senses with songs and prayers and foods and sights and sounds. They were memory aids that God gave to his people so they could remember the past. Passover, recalling deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Pentecost, recalling the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The Feast of Tabernacles, recalling the wilderness provision. So what has God done in your life that you can remember and dwell upon. I mean, can you recall the early days of your salvation when God felt so real and so near? I've shared this with you before in this congregation, but when I was a young Christian, I had a job as a, as a basically a janitor. I was cleaning office buildings in the middle of the night. But it was a time in my life where the presence of God was so real that I just had to stop, sometimes get on my knees and, and just pray and almost weep because God was so close in that empty office building. Those are things that I call remembrance when I'm feeling dry and barren. What about you? What do you call to remembrance? I mean, can you recall a time when God healed you? Had a headache, you prayed, then maybe you forgot that you prayed about it when you felt better? Can you remember a time when God healed somebody that you love? What about a time when, when God just wasn't moving and there was no way out, that the path was obscured, but suddenly that mountain it just shifted and you walked straight through. What does that look like? What did that look like in your life? Do you remember? What have you given thanks for in the past? Give thanks for it again. Remember the former joys. If they were real then, then they can be real again. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. That's Psalm 30, verse 5. So the fact that there's been so much, so much, if we take stock of it, to to remember, to give thanks for over what has happened in the past is a guarantee that there will once again be those things in the future. In times of darkness, the light we cling to is the light of remembering. 
God's not bound by time. The God of the past is the God of the present. Remember God. We also see, verse 5, hope in God. Hope in God. Verse 5 poses the question that will be repeated one more time, and then actually at the end of Psalm 43, too, says, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? This is the reason for the psalmist's spiritual thirst. His soul is despairing. Literally, that word means sunk down. The waters, they're stirred and they're muddy. He's feeling unsettled. There's this disturbance, either in his circumstances or in his fellowship with God, or both. Those are usually related. And the exact reasons for why his soul is in despair is not something that we necessarily need to know, because we all understand what it is to feel Despair. To despair is to lose hope. The present moment is, is too difficult to face. You don't see a way out. You can't imagine ever feeling whole again. Everything is shaded by your present circumstances. As a Christian, you know that God is near, but at the moment, the source of your despair seems and appears much, much bigger than God, and you feel the hopelessness threatening to sweep you under. But you cannot feel the nearness of God. Sound dramatic? It's what the psalmist was feeling. And if, if you're honest, it's what you felt. Maybe what you're feeling today. And so the imagery here in Psalm 42, it suddenly changes. It goes from a drought to a deluge, to a flood. The writer attempts to describe the turmoil within his soul in verses 6 and 7. We have the peaks of Hermon, among which lie Mount Nizar. This is in northern Israel, and this is the region where the Jordan River has its headwaters. The source of the Jordan River comes out of this mountain range. So water is rushing over boulders and crashing down around him. You know, perhaps this is the place he is standing, looking longingly to the south and toward the temple in Jerusalem. Deep calls to deep, verse 7. Deep calls to deep. A phrase that, that draws from Genesis 1-2. Sound familiar? Darkness was over the surface of the deep. There's chaos in the formless and empty earth. There's chaos in the empty and the despairing soul. All your breakers and your waves rolled over me. So the writer is not just listening to the rushing water over the boulders. He is now submerged. The disparity has engulfed him. We find the prophet Jonah using similar language as he's crying out from the belly of the fish. For you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. What was Jonah thinking at that moment? Well, he was thinking he was going to die. People don't typically make it out of the stomachs of wells. Sometimes the soul is in such chaos that you feel as if you will drown in the waves. Our psalmist says in verse 7, all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. We've gone from thirst to chaos. From thirst to chaos. And this is just being honest with the Lord. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Is that okay to say to God? You bet. Verse 6, oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. So what do you do? I mean, it's not a sin to acknowledge what you feel. The Lord knows that already. Far better that you just simply put it as plainly as possible. 
than pretending you're feeling something that you're not. So the answer in times of spiritual drought, as we've seen, is to remember. The answer in spiritual chaos is to hope in God, for I shall again praise him. In the Hebrew language, the word for hope and wait is the same word. We encounter this idea frequently in the Psalms, the idea that, that hoping is waiting, which makes sense. After all, you do not hope for what you already possess. You're no longer waiting for it. Hope has to do with the future. You're looking forward with expectation. In the expecting, you are waiting. Hope in God, wait on God. And notice that biblical hope, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. I hope that I will live to be 100. That's wishful thinking. That's great, Jeff. I might, I might not. I have no reason to think that I will or that I won't. Hope in God is never wishful thinking. Hope in God is fervent and focused expectation. Listen to how hope is related to faith. Faith looks back to what God has done in the past. We're looking back. Faith is grounding your life in the past promises that God has made. Hope looks forward to what God will do. Talking about the future. So while faith rests on what God has said, hope scans the horizon for the fulfillment of God's words. I think about the parable of the prodigal son. What is the father doing waiting for his son to come back? He's not out in the farm. He's not hanging out inside. He's sitting on the top of the wall and he's scanning the horizon in the expectation that his son will come back. So if faith clings to the past promise, hope clings to the future fulfillment. We lose hope and lose perspective, we lose that expectation. That's what's happening. We no longer are convinced that God is going to do what he said that he will do. And this is not wishful thinking. This is, this is hope. Hope in what? Hope in God. And the specific thing that the psalmist states he is hoping for is this. For I shall again praise him. In the moment of chaos, when, when the soul is in turmoil within, when there's, when there's turmoil without, whatever that might look like for you, it is hard to praise God. It's hard. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Doesn't mean he's not worthy of your praise every moment of every day. It just means it's hard. It's hard to praise with a heavy spirit. It's hard to praise when the future is dark and when the future is uncertain. So what is it that will lift your spirit? What is it that will bring you out of the dark belly of the well, out of the grave of despair? Well, look at the whole phrase. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. For the help of his presence. It's the presence of God. Calls forth a joyous praise. And that, of course, is what the psalmist is seeking. It's what he's thirsting after. The experienced presence of God is the thing that will calm our souls in distress. It's the thing that will cut straight through the confusion. It is that which will shine a glorious light in the darkest night of your soul. So what else are you doing? You're seeking, you're remembering, and you're hoping. What else are you called to do? Rest in God. Rest in God. The experience of God's presence, what I've been saying, satisfies your spiritual thirst and calms the chaos within. The experience of his presence. 
But this is crucial to keep in mind. I want you to take note of it. Just because you do not sense the satisfying and the calming presence of God does not mean that God is not there. He is present. He is just as near when you sense his presence as he is when you sing, when, you, when you're seeming to sense everything except him. He is just as near. And the writer knows this. Because not only is he waiting on the experience of God's presence, he is also acknowledging God's presence. I'm waiting for that experience to calm the chaos in my soul, to quench my thirst. But I'm also going to acknowledge God's presence. And he does this in verse 8. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night. So you will probably by now from the Psalms that I've preached through and your own reading recognize a common refrain in the Psalms in this verse, that word loving kindness. Maybe you have steadfast love. Maybe you have unfailing love. It's one word in Hebrew. It's God's covenant love, the covenant love of God. And, and all these phrases express the same idea. That is that God's love toward his people never ceases to flow. God's love toward his people never ceases to flow. In the darkest days, in your most fearful moments, when, when despair threatens to overwhelm you, God's love still flows as steady towards you as it did on your best days. And that is exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ shows us. Listen. God's love has nothing to do with how you feel. On your best days, when you are seeking and you're finding, and your prayer life is just humming along, on your best days when others, they're just shielding their faces because of the joy that's radiating from yours, on your best days, you are accepted by God only because Jesus was rejected in your place. On your best days. What that means is that on your worst days, when you seek and you find nothing, when you can't even pray, and the thought of trying to do so just makes you tired, your worst days here. When all you have for others is a frown or maybe an irritable remark. When your soul is in deep distress and, and your own raw honesty with God scares you. On your worst days. You were only accepted by God because Jesus was rejected in your place. God's not looking at how your day is going. He's not looking at how you're feeling. He's not looking at your circumstances. He's not looking at how well you're responding, how obedient you're being, how great of a Christian you are. He's looking at Jesus. He's looking at you through Jesus. And he's accepting you and his, his ever-flowing, never-ceasing love is being poured out upon you because all that could be held against you has already been held against Jesus. God's covenant love has nothing to do with you or how you feel or what you've done. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. You will not command it. The Lord does that. He is commanding it whether you receive it or not. Whether you receive it or not, it's there. What are you going to do with it? His song will be with me in the night. You're not singing the song. It's not your song. It's his song. The song of the Lord is being sung to you 
God is taking the initiative. And so there's no day that, that God's covenant love does not cease to flow towards you in all of its abundance, in all of its abundance, if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, because if you're not in Christ, it's not covenant love, it's, it's covenant wrath that flows towards you. But if you're in Christ, there's no, there's no night, there's, there's no night no matter how long or how dark, that the very song of heaven expressing the heartbeat of God will not be with you. Covenant love, loving kindness of God. And the point is this, God is always present. He's always present. I don't just mean he's there because he's everywhere all the time. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, he's always present with his people in the promise that his love will never cease to flow to us. He's always present. Listen to how Jeremiah puts it in Lamentations 3. For the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. The city is burning around him. The temple has been destroyed. People are dead. People are gone. It's a bad situation. And he says, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning, even on the darkest mornings. So how does that help you in your moments of loneliness, in your moments of despair? Well, it helps you because God's steadfast love is the seal on your life that you belong to him. There's nothing you could do to make him love you any less than the love you felt at the moment of your salvation. His love doesn't go up and down. It's steady. There will be nothing in eternity to ever lessen the intensity of his love towards you. Because Jesus received into himself the full displeasure of God. And that was the full displeasure of God against everything that you and I have done. Jesus was forsaken in your place. Jesus was despised in your place. Jesus became sin on your behalf. And now, even as Jesus will never die again, he will not return to the grave, so neither will any of those who belong to him stay in the grave. It's a simple choice. Trust Jesus and what he's done for you and choose life or reject him and choose death. No distress, no turmoil, no depression, no anxiety can ever be greater than the loving acceptance of God. So, I mean, what is it to be loved unless, unless love is the total acceptance of another? Think about that. What does it mean to be loved? It's what we long for, to be fully known and accepted. To be fully known, scary, isn't it? And accepted. The acceptance of a spouse is life-giving. The acceptance of a friend is life-giving. How much more the acceptance of God? Do you take time to reflect on that? If your spouse rejuvenates you, if your best friend rejuvenates you in their presence, how much more should God? Because he can do for you what no spouse or friend could ever do. He loves you unconditionally, without wavering, every moment of every day, into eternity. Because that is the same intensity of love that the Father pours out upon his Son. And if you're in his Son, it's being poured out upon you. That's just a fact. I don't care what's going on around you. I don't care what's going on within you. If you're in Christ, that love is being poured out on you. Jesus said in John 17, 23, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them 
even as you have loved me. How does God love us, love them, the same way he loves Jesus? Think about that. So in seeking to experience God's presence, you remember what he's done. You look forward to what he will do. But in the meantime, in the meantime, in the waiting, you simply receive what he is doing. You rest in that. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, the acceptance of God. Are you resting in that? This resting in God's love for you, quite apart from anything you can do or anything that you might feel, becomes, verse 8, a prayer to the God of my life. A prayer to the God of my life. The waiting, the resting, the receiving becomes a prayer to the God of my life. Then in verse 9, I will say to my rock, why have you forgotten me? Wait a second. This is the psalmist seeking God. Why have you forgotten me? Because even in feeling forgotten by God, the psalmist, he knows that he is not. He knows that he is not. You might forget that you're clinging to the rock in the midst of the hurricane because of all that's going on behind you, but the rock is still there. It's still there. God is so near and he's so present that we often miss him. I would say most of the time, we miss him. Our emotions are, are raging out of control within, and they're producing physical effects, and our stomachs are churning, and our thoughts are clouded, and we can't seem to get any relief from, from what's piercing our hearts. What the psalmist is trying to express, as the shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Where is your God? Where is your God? He's here. He's here. The drought does not mean that he's disappeared. The chaos does not mean that he's left. In fact, what do we read back in Genesis 1-2? Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And what? The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. There it is. There was not yet calm and peace, yet the Spirit hovered. It's waiting Holy Spirit poised to act at the command of the Father, to speak into that chaos. And so too is the Holy Spirit hovering over your heart, ready to act at the command of the Father. God is present. God is near. And wherever you might find yourself, whether you're seeking, remembering, waiting, or resting, the spiritual drought should never cause you to doubt the presence of God. That thirst is not there to cause you to doubt. That thirst is there to propel you to seek. The spiritual chaos within should never cause you to wonder if God has forsaken you. It should motivate you to wait. It's our tendency. Lord, you must have forgotten me because it feels so bad inside. And the Lord's saying, wait on me. That's your motivation to wait on me. I'm here. And the lack of awareness of God's presence should never cause you to doubt that he is near, that he is close. It should cause you, it should drive you to rest in the everlasting acceptance, the steadfast love of God that is always poured out upon his son and so is always poured out upon you if you're in his son. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. 
the help of my countenance and my God. Let's pray. Father, I know that I needed this reminder this morning that, that you are near. And I, I believe that everyone in here did as well. We're in different places. We're feeling different things. But we all know what it is to cry out to you and feel like that we're crying into an empty room. But Lord, your promise is that you're near. And that your, that your steadfast love, your continual covenant love, is always flowing toward us. And we can rest in your acceptance, Father, that you know us all the way down to the depths of our ugly hearts. Know us fully, but you still accept us in Christ. So help us to rest in that. And if there's somebody in here today that does not know what it is to rest in Jesus, to know that they are fully accepted and forgiven by the God of the universe because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because he rose from the dead, because he sits at the right hand of God. If there's someone here today that does not know that, has not experienced that in their life, it's just mere words, but has not been an experience of their heart, Father, I pray that today would be that person's day of salvation. Thank you, Father, that you're near. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.